It was high noon on October 28 when a general looked up at the sky and reported that he saw a brilliant light. And that brilliant light was in the form of a cross. And above that cross were placarded the words, By this you shall conquer. By this you shall conquer. And the year was 312. The man was the Roman Emperor Constantine. And it marked the turning point in a decisive battle which led to a long and successful political career for Constantine. Now, whether this actually occurred, we do not know, but Constantine accredited his victory that day to the vision of God, and he claimed that on that day he was converted to the Lord Jesus Christ, and from that moment on, Christianity became legal within the Roman Empire. And to commemorate that great victory that day, he set up a victor's wreath in a triumphal arch where he recorded these words, by greatness of mind and impulse of divinity, the victory has been won. Now, whether this actually happened, whether Constantine actually received a vision from God, whether God actually came beside him, is beside the point we would rather think that it did not happen that way. But here, in this very important decision, this very strategic moment in the life of Israel, we know certainly that God did come to this military general named Joshua, and he came alongside him, and he intervened in these historical circumstances, and he charged and commissioned this man, this soldier, this leader of Israel, to go out into the land of Canaan and to conquer it for the glory of God, and for the fulfillment of God's covenant promises. And his charge to Joshua here includes three commands. And I want us to analyze these three commands in God's commissioning of Joshua to go conquer the land of Canaan in fulfillment of covenant promises. And first of all, I want us to notice the first command that God gave unto Joshua, and you find that in verse 2. As Joshua stands on the brink of the promises, as Joshua is surrounded with the soldiers of the land of Israel, the people of Israel, God comes to him and he says, Moses, my servant, is dead. Now, therefore, arise and cross. There is the command given to Joshua. Arise and cross. And then God goes on to say, every place on which the sole of your foot treads, I will give it to you, just as I spoke to Moses from the wilderness and this Lebanon, as far as the east of the great river, the river Euphrates, all the land of the Hittites, as far as the great sea towards the setting of the sun, this will be your territory. Now you can imagine what a tense moment and situation this is for Joshua. And here Joshua stands on the precipice of great promises. He stands in the plains of Moab. He stands with a rebellious group of Israelites. And he stands before the land which God had promised to his ancestors for hundreds of years. And he can see from the banks of the plains of Moab the vast sweep of the land of Canaan. And he looks as the Lord brings this command to him, he looks to the south, to the wilderness, and then he looks to the north, the mountains of Lebanon, and then God turns his head the other way and says, look to the east as far as you can see, and of course Joshua couldn't see it, but way to the east was the river Euphrates, the great river Euphrates, and then very, very far off in the faint distance to the west 
was the Mediterranean Sea, the Great Sea. And God said, this is all of the land which I have promised. This is the land that God had promised for hundreds of years. He had promised it to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1. He says, get yourself up in all of your house, and you go to the land that I'm giving Repeatedly in the book of Genesis, when God comes to Abraham, he continues to unravel for him the depths and the dimensions of his promise. But even as far back as Genesis 13 and then Genesis 15, God had been defining the borders and limits of this land. And that's the same set of borders that you find in Genesis 15 that you find recorded here in Joshua chapter 1. And now after hundreds of years of having this promise laid before them, now God comes to Joshua and he says, Joshua, you are the one. Arise and go. Just to help us gain a sense of the sense of being overwhelmed that Joshua must have felt, you see the context of the giving of this promise here in verse 1 where he says, Now Moses, my servant, is dead. A very important thing to consider here. Moses had been, of course, the leader of Israel for 40 years. Moses had led Israel out of Egypt. Moses had performed great signs and wonders in Egypt. Moses had been God's servant to lead Israel through the Dead Sea, or rather the Great Red Sea on dry land. But time and time again, Moses has affected his leadership skills for the sake of Israel's success as they wandered in the wilderness. And you see something of the greatness of Moses uh, back in Deuteronomy 34. And many of you, if your Bible's open, you need to turn there because there's uh, 10 and 11 tell us of the greatness of Moses. It says, since that time, no prophet has arisen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. For all the signs and wonders which the Lord sent him to perform in the land of Canaan, the land of Egypt against Pharaoh, and all his servants, and all this land, and for all the mighty power, for all the great terror which Moses performed in the sight of all of Israel. Not only is Joshua standing before great promises, but Joshua is following a great leader. What an incredible leadership vacuum has emerged here as Moses has gone on to be with the Lord. And you remember the reason why Moses has gone on to be with the Lord. In spite of everything that Moses did in faithfulness to lead Israel, Moses was prevented from leading this people in the land of Canaan. And it's not simply that Moses died. It's not simply that Moses had a heart attack or suffered a stroke and just simply passed on the night of old age. In fact, we are told in Deuteronomy chapter 34 that he was 120 years old when he died. His eye was not dim, nor was his vigor abated. I want to die like that at 120. Uh, It wasn't that he had physical infirmities. That's not the reason why Moses was not tasked with leading this invasion. It wasn't because he was crippled and walking with a cane, had to be pushed around uh, the land of Canaan in a wheelchair. Moses disobeyed God. We're told that the people of Israel rebelled against God in Numbers chapter 20. And we're told that Moses got so angry with the people of God that 
when he picked up that stick to hit the rock, which God commanded him to, that he didn't just hit it once, but he hit that rock twice out of exasperation and anger with these people. And for that, God said to Moses that he would not be able to go into the land of Canaan. Deuteronomy chapter 32 says, Because you broke faith with me in the midst of the sons of Israel, at the waters of Meribah you shall not go there. So it's not just that he stands on the brink of great promises. It's not just that he fills the shoes of a great leader. But Joshua also has to be a little bit fearful because what if he disobeys the Lord? Or what if he grows exasperated with this rebellious, stiff-necked people? But we should pause to think about what's going on here as we look at this uh, meeting of God with Joshua here in Joshua chapter 1. It is a moment uh, of great expectation, but it is also a moment where there's a tremendous vacuum of leadership. There's over a million people camped on the plains of Moab. And the leader of this people who had led them for 40 years is dead. How many times in the wanderings had the people of Israel attempted to hire a new leader to take everybody back to Egypt? Maybe that would happen. How many times along the 40 years of wanderings uh, had the people of Israel decided they didn't want Yahweh to be their God anymore and began to worship uh, the idols of the land which they were a part of? You stop and think about it. Who knows what this people will do? And here's God coming to Joshua saying, Joshua, I want you to take these people up. There's a moment of crisis really in the history of Israel. Perhaps it's most important moment. God comes to Joshua and he says, arise and go. That leads us to think a moment about this man Joshua whom God is coming to them. Joshua. He's Joshua, son of Nun. His name originally was Hoshea. Hoshea, which means salvation. But we're told in Numbers chapter 13 that God changed, or rather Moses changed Joshua's name to Yeshua. Which means the Lord delivers, the Lord saves. And translated into Greek, which the uh, Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, translates that name, Jesus. And if that sounds familiar, go ahead and move that on to English, and it means Jesus. Fascinating how God has brought all of these things together here as Joshua, or Jesus, is standing before the promises with the people of Israel, and is commissioned to lead them into the promised land. I hope you're already seeing the connections now to the New Testament and to the greater Joshua, to the Jesus, the Son of God, who will lead his people in conquest of earthly powers, of demonic rule, and lead them into the heavenly kingdom of God. Because that's exactly what God is intending to communicate to the church through this great book. Joshua is a man of great experience. He was born in Egypt. That means that Joshua was there to see the miraculous signs and wonders that God performed in leading Israel out of Egypt. He was there to see the parting of the Red Sea. We're told in Exodus chapter 17 that Joshua was a military leader. 
Moses commissioned him to fight the Amalekites, and we're told in Exodus 17:13 that his forces overwhelmed them with the edge of the sword. We're told here in Joshua 1 that he was a servant of Moses. Numbers 13, you may remember from your Sunday school lessons that uh, Joshua was one of the 12 spies who was sent into the land of Canaan. Forty years ago, at another point, you see here they're standing on the east side of the Jordan River. Forty years prior to this, they were in the southern part of the land of Canaan, the Kadesh Barnea. And they sent out the 12 spies to spy out the land of Joshua was one of those spies. And it's that particular episode that reveals the character of this Joshua. Because we are told when the spies came back in Numbers chapter 14 that the other ten spies gave a very negative report. After reporting on how the land was flowing with milk and honey, that it was, it was full of agriculture and crops and produce and all kinds of wonderful blessings, they went to talk about the negative parts of that. And they said that the cities were well fortified, that the land was full of giants, and it would be impossible to conquer the land and to save their life. And Joshua then stands up to the people, and he says that the Lord is pleased with us. He will bring us into this land. If the Lord is with us, do not fear them. Think back on all the experiences of Joshua and all that we could say about him. I think this is the most important thing we can say about Joshua. Is not only he was a man of experience, but he was a man of genuine godly character. Joshua was one who trusted in the Lord. He trusted in his power. He trusted in his promises. He had shown himself to be a valiant, faithful servant of God. And perhaps for that in... Many other reasons Joshua now is appointed to lead this people into the land of Canaan. And so God tasks him. He says, Joshua, arise. Notice he tells him the way in which he is to go up. That leads us to our second command in this charge of, of the Lord to Joshua. See that in verse 6. He says, be strong. And courageous. For you shall give this people possession of the land. Notice how God repeats that in verse 7. He says, only be strong and very courageous. Notice that God repeats that again in verse 9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. And this is the the second charge to Joshua here. As he stands at the brink of the promises, as he stands with the rebellious people, as he stands with enormous obstacles in front of him, as he stands before a land which is truly filled with giants and fortified cities, this is what God says to him. He says, Joshua, you be strong. You be courageous. Both of the words here are used in military context. They're both admonitions to fight hard. If there's any difference between the words be strong and be courageous, it could be the second word be courageous means stick to it. Be resolute in your focus. Uh, It's interesting, it's not the only time you find this word to be dropped down in your passage this morning in Joshua chapter 1. You'll see in verse 18 that the people of Israel are saying the very same thing to Joshua. 
They said, anyone who rebels against your command and does not obey your words and all that you command him shall be put to death. Only be strong and courageous. It's not just here. It's also in Moses' words to Joshua. And it's in God's words to Joshua in Deuteronomy 31. Every time it seems somebody is speaking to Joshua, they're saying, Joshua, be strong and be courageous. What else would he need, though? Again, think about the people that God has called upon him to lead. He knows that they are people who are given to cowardice. Remembering the Numbers 14 Kaddish incident when they come back and say there's giants in the land. Remember the fact that these are people who lack military fighting experience because... The people who are going to be the fighting force that Joshua leads in the invasion of Canaan haven't been in any battles. They are all sons of their fathers who fought, but they really haven't seen any military service. The quality of the opponents which are before this. Deuteronomy chapter 7 verse 1 says that in the land of Canaan there were seven nations greater and mightier than Israel. And then of course... The task of Joshua, which is to gather these 12 tribes who show a proneness to wandering into isolationism, into carping and fighting with each other, that they have to come together as God's people and fight. Notice the enormous leadership challenge that's set before Joshua. You see a sense of that in verse 12 of our passage where he goes to the Reubenites and to the Gadites and the half-tribe Manasseh. And he says, Joshua said, Remember the word which Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded you, saying, The Lord your God gives you rest and will give you this land. Your wives and your little ones and your cattle shall remain the land which Moses gave you beyond the Jordan. But you shall cross before your brothers in battle array, all of you valiant warriors, and you shall help them until the Lord gives your brothers rest. And why would Joshua do that? Because on the east side of the Jordan River, outside of this land of promise, or outside of really the land of Canaan, Reuben and Gad and Manasseh had already decided they want to put their tents down, they want to build their cities there, and they want to raise their livestock on the other side of the Jordan River. And so here Joshua is faced with enormous leadership challenge. How is he going to rally all of God's people to take all of the land of Canaan after Moses is dead? Now, this is a very uh, antiseptic, I think, very antiseptic record of what Joshua did. I fully believe, knowing the character of these people and then thinking about the character of Joshua, that he must have really had to get up there to those tribes and the leaders and the officials of those people. And I'll bet you he had to grab them by the collar and said, remember, you swore. You swore to Moses that even if he allowed you to stay on this side of the east side of Jordan, you would take up your swords and you would follow the rest of the people in the conquest of the land of Canaan. I don't imagine it was simple as Joshua walked up to them, showed them their agreement to Moses, and they said, well, whatever you say, we're going to do, Joshua. I believe that Joshua faced enormous obstacles to rally the people of God. But notice that's exactly what Joshua does. 
Notice that Joshua implements this command to be strong and courageous. You see it beginning in verse 10. It says, Then Joshua commanded the officers of the people, saying, Pass through the midst of the camp, and commanded the people, saying, Prepare provisions for yourselves. Within three days, we're going to cross this Jordan and to possess the land. We don't have to wait to figure out whether Joshua is going to respond to the command to arrive. We don't have to wait to see whether Joshua is going to respond to the command to be bold and be courageous. Joshua gets up. It almost seems as, as if he walks out of the tent of meeting that he has here with the Lord. And he walks right up to military officers. And he gets in their face and he says, boys, this is how it's going to be. Get your troops ready for battle. Strap on your hard hats. Sharpen your spears. We're going to war. Joshua seized the leadership challenge. God commends here, I believe, attitudes which are consistent with kingdom service, though. God commands attitudes here in these words of be bold and be courageous, which are consistent with kingdom service. Turn to the New Testament, you see that both of these words are used. The great translations of them are used in commands to Christians. Paul says in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10, he says, Be strong. Be strong in the Lord and the power of his might. 1 Corinthians 16, 13. Paul admonishes the Corinthians in a series of admonitions toward the end of the letter. Stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. Act like men. And Godzomai, that's what the word is in the Greek. And it is also the translation of be courageous here in God's charts to Joshua. And Godzomai, act like men. Now Paul picks up those words and he applies them to the church. And he says in the context of the New Covenant, in the context of the setting of the missionary mandate to go out into the world and to conquer it for Jesus Christ, in the context of being called to serve God, in the context of battling personal sin, in the context of witnessing for the gospel, in the context of walking in obedience and righteousness before the Lord, in the context of a host of demonic foes who would stand against you, who would love to trip you up, who would love to take your eyes off Jehovah, who would love to see you fall and dishonor the Lord. God says, through Paul, be strong and be courageous. These are attitudes which are commanded of Christians. Whatever charge God has given you, people of God, whether that's to be the leader of your home as a man, whether that's to be the parents of your children, to teach them the nurture and admonition of the Lord, whether that is to go out into the world and to serve Him for His glory, whether that is to go out and to witness the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, whether that is to serve in the church as an elder or as a deacon or as a minister of the Word, in whatever calling God has given you that's kingdom-related, these words of admonition are to you. Be strong and be courageous. As I was thinking about these words over the course of this past week, it struck me that these words are seldom followed or spoken about today in our church context. I do believe that an incorrect understanding of gentleness has led many people to think that the proper attitude and mindset of Christians is to be timid and half-hearted and soft and convictionless. As if spinelessness was next to godliness. 
as if spinelessness was next to godliness. As if a false humility was better than the attitudes and mindset that God commends here. And let's be clear about the fact that God is not contradicting himself in one place saying, well, this is an Old Testament attitude that the kingdom of, of Israel in the Old Testament was supposed to be bold and courageous, but now we move to the New Testament, we're supposed to be a gentle, spineless, convictionless kind of people. But it cannot be the case because God is inspiring the words of the text both in Joshua and both in Ephesians and 1 Corinthians. There's no contradiction between the two. If we would serve the Lord in a way that pleases Him, if we would face the trials and the obstacles that we face in serving the Lord in a way that, that pleases God, we're going to have to be bold and courageous. Let's not substitute that for a false humility. How will we do this? Look at verse 5. It's no accident that these words are positioned just prior to the command to be bold and courageous in fighting for the Lord and His kingdom. God says to Joshua, No man will be able to stand before you all the days of your life. Just as I have been with Moses, I will be with you. I will not fail you nor forsake you. How will Joshua muster up the courage and the boldness to lead these people, to seize the promises, to conquer the land of Canaan, to unify a fragmented set of twelve tribes? How will he do that? How will he be bold? The answer is found in verse 5 in these words. I will be with you. I'm very sure that Joshua understood what that meant. After all, I said that Joshua was born in Egypt. Which means that Joshua saw the ten plagues which fell upon Pharaoh's house and decimated it. It meant that Joshua was there to see God parting the Red Sea and leading people across on dry ground. It meant that Joshua witnessed all the miracles in the wilderness. It meant Joshua was there when God came down on Mount Sinai and filled it with quaking and thundering and lightning, the holiness of his presence. Joshua saw what it meant for God to be with his people. Joshua was there for 40 years when God was with the people of Israel by pillar of cloud during the day, the pillar of of fire by night. Joshua knew what it meant when God said, I will be with you. And you know what, people of God? We know what it means too. For Jesus said to us, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the world. What does that mean? It means exactly what Jesus said as he explained what that meant in John chapter 14 and John chapter 15 and John chapter 16, that what Jesus has done as a result of his ascension to the Father, he has poured out his Holy Spirit, and that every single Christian has the possession of the Holy Spirit in their heart. As we sit here in this sanctuary and worship the Lord, the Holy Spirit is with us, and because He is with us, Jesus is with us. 
when you go to work tomorrow morning and you have to face difficult co-workers and the crabby boss, that Jesus is still with you. When you go into uh, the doctor's office and you sit in one of his waiting rooms and you wait for test results that you're not sure that Jesus is with you. When you go to a graveside and you bury a loved one and you shed your tears upon that loved one as you honor his presence and his memory by putting him in the ground and giving him proper burial. God is with you. Jesus is there. Wherever you go, in whatever situation, Jesus has promised, Lo, I am with you always, even to the end. How can we be bold and courageous and fulfill God's calling upon our life? We do it through the strength that Christ gives us. Lo, I will be with you always. God knows we're going to struggle, people of God. God knows we're going to have a difficult time putting these commands into practice. But his encouragement to you this morning is, even though it's hard to stand up to what's difficult in life, Jesus promises, sure, I will be with you. I hope that you're praying in a very special way over the next few weeks, though, people of God, that your leaders will have a sense of this. I hope that you're praying particularly for those who God is calling to serve in our midst, that they would have a special sense and awareness that God is with us. And that they would have a special determination to boldness and confidence as they serve the Lord here. I'll never forget how important that was to me to hear over and over again from a man who is no longer with us but who helped start this work. Who repeatedly, when I would go discouraged at the outset of this ministry, who would say to me over and over again, pray and just go and do the right thing with your whole heart. That was essentially what Joshua was told here by God. Just pray and go do the right thing with all of your heart. As God raises up leaders to assist us in continuing on with this missionary work here, pray for your leaders that they would know how to pray and go do the right thing with all of their heart. That's boldness. Finally, the third command that we have here as God meets with Joshua is they stand on the brink of the promises. You see in verse 7. Not only does he say, only be strong and courageous, but now he goes on to say, be careful to do according to all the law which Moses, my servant, commanded you. Do not turn to the right or to the left so that you may have success wherever you go. And then verse 8, he says, this book of the law shall not depart from your mouth, but you shall meditate on it. Day and night. That's the third thing that God calls upon Joshua to do. To meditate upon the law day and night. What does that mean? I think we're at some level find this a little bit hard to understand because of the way that we have been taught to think about meditation. 
People today think that meditation is about emptying your mind and sitting in tranquility in a dark room maybe and just begin to let your mind go and relax and then somehow some mystical force comes upon you to work Meditation here in the Old Testament never meant to empty your mind and then just sort of sit in tranquility. Meditation in the Old Testament is just the opposite of emptiness and the opposite of tranquility. Meditation in the Old Testament meant to murmur or to mutter really, to, to mutter the words out loud over and over and over and over again. So when Joshua is told here to meditate upon the law of God, he's not told to go to his prayer closet in a quiet place and just sit in tranquility and peace. He's called to take the words of the law upon his lips and to speak them over and over and over and over and over again. And God says to Joshua, you take the words of this law and you mutter them over and over and over. You speak them to yourself over and over and over. And then God says, when you do that, look at the, verse of, the rest of verse 8. So that you may be careful to do according to all that is written in it, for then you will make your way prosperous. You will have success. You see that? Here God takes this overwhelmed Joshua in the face of enormous promises and in the prospects of difficult military campaigns. And he says, Joshua, I'm going to tell you how to be victorious. It's not simply with sharpened spears and superior battle tactics and strategy. You mutter the word of God. Over and over and over again. As long as Joshua conducts this military campaign according to the law, according to Deuteronomy chapter 20, which lays down the principles of holy warfare, which is there not to fear their enemy, there to take no prisoners, there to kill every man, woman, and child, and beast, there to not make allegiances with any people and neighbors of the land, as long as they follow the principles of holy warfare that God has given. And Joshua repeats those over and over and over again. And follows that law, God says you will have success. What does that mean for us this morning? Surely this command is to us every bit as much as it is to Joshua. But before we apply that to ourselves, I just want to clarify here, because this is one of the most abused verses in the Old Testament. How many times have you had or, or heard sermons that if you just meditate on the law, you will have the promise of success and you will be prosperous? And how many times have you heard that applied to financial well-being and security? That the man who would truly be best blessed in his business practices will be the one who meditates upon the law day and night. Uh, the man who will rise from poverty to riches is the man who will be trusting that if he does God's law and meditates on it day and night, that he will be prosperous and successful. How many times are the people of God promised gold watches and good health and uh, great investment portfolios as long as they meditate upon the law day and night? Well, that's wrong because these words are never used to refer to financial success anywhere in the Old Testament. 
Not once. In fact, in the vast majority of times they are used, they simply mean to have success in what God called you to do. What has God called you to do? Some of you, God has called you to go work in the workplace and to work heartily under the Lord and not with eye service unto men. For some of you, God has called you to work in the home. For some of you, God has called you to be husbands. For some of you, God has called you to be wives. For some of you, God has called you to be students. For some of you, God has called you to be married. For some of you, God has called you to work in the church. Uh, We can think of all the different ways in which God has called us to serve Him. But here now is the way in which God can have to serve, not only with boldness, but meditating on the law day and night, uttering or muttering the law to ourselves over and over and over again, reminding ourselves what God wants, not what we want. So easy for us to rationalize for ourselves what God didn't command. So easy for us to make up a whole series of reasons for why we should do it our way. Because it makes more sense to us. Maybe because it's easier. Maybe because more people will like us if we do a particular way. Or maybe just because our ideas conflict with God. But hear what Joshua is saying. It might be it's very applicable to us. That God will bless our service for Christ as we do serve God in the very way that God commands according to His law. Whatever God has called you this morning to do, people of God, the command here of Joshua from God is the same to you. Meditate upon the day the law, day and night, mutter the law, remind yourselves over and over and over again what God requires. And then God will grant us success in what he has called us to do as he has defined success, which is doing it to his glory. Well, that leads us finally to application as we conclude this morning. What do we do with this passage? How do we apply this to ourselves? In spite of all the things that we've talked about, one last thing I would like us to see here is that we should have the same confidence that Israel did. I want you to see Israel's confidence. Look at verse 16. This is after Joshua has exhorted the Reubenites, the Gadites, the tribe of Manasseh, and the rest of Israel. Here's how they responded to Joshua. They said, all that you have commanded we will do. Wherever you send us, we will go. You see, they are lined up behind Joshua as their leader with utter confidence that Joshua is going to take them precisely where God has commanded Joshua to go. Which is where? Into their rest. How many times you read through the book of Joshua you will read that the land of Canaan is described as rest. They're Sabbath. In terms of the New Testament, I had us read this passage for a reason. As we wind our way to conclusion, I want you to see here 
God would have us follow our Joshua to the same rest, but a better one. We are told that as they followed Joshua, as they followed the principles of holy warfare, as they were strong and courageous, as they meditated upon the law day and night, as they followed Joshua's leadership, Israel was given rest. Now notice what the writer of the Hebrews says in verse 8. He says, if Joshua had given them rest, he would not have spoken of another day after that. We're told in the Old Testament that Joshua gave them rest, and now we're told in the New Testament that Joshua didn't give them rest. What does that mean? Look up at verse 5. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 5 says again in this passage, they shall not enter into my rest. That's a quote from Psalm 95, verse 11 seems that as we look at this promise of rest and the promise of the land as it enlarges throughout Scripture, we begin to realize that Israel never fully received that rest. They received a down payment on it. They received a temporary installment of it, but they never really fully received that rest. It wasn't final yet. That's what the writer of the Hebrews here is saying. Joshua didn't give them rest, and now he says there is rest before us. Verse 9. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. For the one who has entered into his rest has himself also rested from his works, as God did from his. What does the preacher say? Oh, this passage would be a sermon in and of itself. But I'll give you the summary. There's rest before us. Because Jesus is the one that's being described in verse 10. The one who entered into rest has rested from his works. What the preacher is saying is that Jesus, by his obedience to God's commands, by his obedience to the law, by his obediently submitting to the sacrifice of himself on the cross, has now entered into rest. He has entered into the eternal kingdom of God. And now because of that, because of the obedience of that greater Joshua, remember now, I told you, their names are Jesus. This greater Jesus obeyed all of God's commands, has rested from his works, and has secured an eternal reward for us. You say, what are we supposed to do in response? Look at verse 11 as we close. Be diligent. Be diligent to enter that rest so that no one will fall through following the same example of disobedience. What is God calling you today? He's calling you to line up behind the greater Joshua and to follow him into his rest to cling to his righteousness and to his obedience, and you will receive the very same reward, which is the rest of the eternal kingdom of God. As we look at this Old Testament Joshua, then God calls you to look upon or beyond that Joshua to the greater and the final Joshua to hear his call to believe in him with your whole heart and to trust that in his obedience the salvation 
and eternal rest from all of our sins and the glorious presence of God for us to enjoy forever and ever. Let's pray.